All right, welcome to the orchard. How many of you have already been over to the mountain fair? I saw some of you yesterday. I was with the Peace Patrol, so I had to, to calm some of you down. And we are in church now. <laughs> we're so glad you're here. Today we're going to be looking at the 23rd Psalm. How many of you know the first words of the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We're very familiar with that. It's written over 3,000 years ago, and yet it's comforting to us. But to some of us, it's become just a sentimental poem that sometimes read at uh, funerals. And so I think it's important <clears throat> to update the 23rd Psalm as if it were written today by people who live in today's world. I believe this is how it would go if it were rewritten. The internet is my shepherd. It makes me want things I didn't know I needed. I can't sleep. My smartphone is beside me. Although I'm drinking from a fire hose of information, I can't get enough. Polluted streams of pop-ups, irrelevant facts pour out upon me. My soul is depleted. It leads me along freeways of information and entertainment for its profit. Dark off-ramps branch everywhere. No firewall can protect me from scammers and hackers. It shows me tables of my friend's dinner eating delicious meals. <laughs> it robs me of motivation, steals my identity, <clears throat> makes me feel insignificant. I'm thirsty, but my cup is dry. Surely wasting time will follow me all the days of my life, and I will live in my parents' basement forever. I think we better stick the original. And I wanted someone to read that who has found the 23rd Psalm to be a lifeline. Nancy Voorhees, read for us the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Nancy, that's not the first time you've ever read that, is it? Nancy has walked through those dark paths, will walk through. That's her lifeline, as you could tell. We need it. The 23rd Psalm is a biblical meditation. Did you ever think you'd hear those two words together? Biblical meditation. Written by King David about the Lord's presence and provision. And as such, David 
based this meditation firmly on the teaching of Scripture about the Lord God Jehovah being the shepherd of Israel. And he imagined the pictures from his life as a young man when he was uh, herding sheep. And so he built this biblical meditation of truth and put it in his experience and made the Lord his shepherd. Now, we might think that David wrote this while he was languishing under a tree, you know, with some grapes and no problem watching the sheep. But probably he wrote this later in life. After he had been anointed king, after he had uh, killed Goliath, after he had been chased around by uh, Saul trying to take his life, after he had fought battles, after he had sinned, been restored, repented, and probably at this point in his life, His son Absalom was attempting a coup. He had amassed his forces and arrayed them against David and his forces. And so David's sitting there, perhaps on the eve of a battle that either would turn out with his death or deep despair at the death of his son. I believe at that point, this is where, at the darkest day of his life, this is where he wrote and composed and lived the 23rd Psalm. Let's look at it just a second. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You see, David uses his imagination, and he's looking now with the sheep's point of view. Now, a sheep's point of view is probably from this level, right? And so he's looking at the good shepherd, the Lord God of Israel, as a sheep, and as he imagines this scene... He's probably imagining a uh, meadow that he has been in, uh, verdantly green, the grass perhaps swaying in the breeze, the sunshine feels it on his shoulder. I think David got into this experientially, which is what a biblical meditation is. Now, David described, Daniel, I'm sorry, Daniel described several weeks ago the good shepherd from John 10. You might want to listen to that again. Uh, describing sheep. Uh, It's important that you understand what sheep are. They're not the smartest animal in the world. They're utterly defenseless, and they tend to wander off, either get lost or get eaten. But a sheep in a flock back in biblical days was different than you would see sheep today. If you've seen sheep today, you've probably seen bands of a thousand using lambs. But back in the day, the flocks were small. It was more intimate. The shepherd, as Jesus described himself to be, knew the sheep by name and took care of them personally and would would, uh, often uh, come over and and, and separate the wool and see if there were any wounds and and put ointment on and feed. Uh, The the metaphor of shepherd, um, today there's a guy in a wagon with a horse and a dog and a gun with a thousand that's not a good metaphor anymore. I think the metaphor is more what it would be a loving mother and a caring father all together. That's how close, the good shepherd. David says, I shall not want. Now, David remembered that he led the sheep <clears throat> into pastures of green grass so that they would never be hungry, led them by still waters so that they would not uh, be thirsty. So he took care 
of the sheep. But it's important to understand that sheep do not worry. They live life one mouthful of grass at a time. Give us this day our daily bread. A sheep doesn't fret or be concerned about where the next mouthful is coming from. As long as a good shepherd leads them into those pastures. And if a predator comes and chases them, yeah, they run away. But when the shepherd takes care of the predator, it's like the dangerous past. They don't remember it. And they begin to settle down and graze in the green pasture. The uh, sheep live securely without worry. What would it be like if you were to live with absolute confidence that the good shepherd was taking care of you? And although you may be facing financial bills, medical challenges, relational bumps, that you know the good shepherd is with you and you shall not want. How would you like to live with that kind of peace? You may not need a pill. But you do need a good shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, if you were in college, you may have gone out and tipped cows over at night. The the shepherd's not tipping sheep over (laughs) or or tripping them or forcing them down. Sheep will lay down when their tummy's full and they feel incredibly secure. They swallow the grass down to one stomach, and then they lay down if they're content They bring it up and chew it and get some more out of it. A sheep lays down when it's content. Now, it's amazing that David, surrounded by danger and chaos, when he wrote this, he is importing peace and comfort into his soul as he reminds himself that even though he's in his darkest day, The good shepherd causes him to lay down in peace, leads him beside still waters where he can drink his fill, with the hunger assuaged and the thirst quenched. All of this time, the shepherd is called by name and talked adoringly to the lamb and fed them and and cleansed them and protected them. That has restored the soul. He restores my soul. Now, with your soul restored, you're ready for the road, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He guides me. Now, when we hear that he leads us into righteousness, we kind of draw back because we're afraid he's going to make us religious. Now, who wants to be religious? I mean, that is a, uh, a put down for someone to say, well, you're just religious. No, religion, we think of it as people who are pious, who don't smile very much, they're fairly somber, and they're minding their P's and Q's as well as the big ones, and looking over and looking down on people who are not doing as well as they are. No one wants to be religious, and that is not God's intent to guide you in paths of religiosity. Transform the way you think of righteousness. If God were to lead you in paths of righteousness and you were to follow, let me tell you what you would be like. You would become the best version of yourself. You would become the the person God made you to be. If you could be here today in your life and you were able 
to wipe out disastrous decisions and wrong roads and, and hurts. And if you were able to be here and, and have lived a life of wisdom and courage and compassion, that's righteousness. He wants to sanctify you in that way so that no matter where you live or who you're with, that the kind of person you are is the kind of person who is filled and resourced so that you can love God and love people. Oftentimes, we're more concerned that God would guide us into, well, what job or where to live or who to be with. But unless you are transformed, unless you are the person God made you to be, you're not going to do well in any of those circumstances. The most important thing about you to be transformed is the kind of person you are. And then you can be in those different situations. Uh-oh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. How in the world did we get here? The valley, the, just a minute ago, we were on paths of righteousness. Ta-da. And now we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, sometimes the path of righteousness can lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and it turns dark. And sometimes we wander off into the valley of the shadow of death. But it doesn't matter because, you see, we're told, you are with me. God doesn't abandon you if you wander off. He doesn't abandon you in dark days. Remember, David's writing this in a dark day. Put that verse up there again. I want you to notice the pronoun. Tell me if you see where the pronoun changes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me. He guides me. How many of you know what a pronoun is? <laughs> All right, what's the pronoun here that's different? You. All of a sudden, it becomes immensely personal. If I'm over here and I'm talking to you and I'm saying, you know, my wife over here, she has stood beside me. We have walked through difficult days and wonderful days. She is this most important person in my life. I'm incredibly indebted to her. And then I go over and I say, darling, you are my delight. Is that different? You see here, the metaphor changes. The pronoun changes because it becomes very personal. You are with me. Your rod and staff. They comfort me. They protect me. No matter what predator or enemy might come at me, I am safe. I am secure. For you are with me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Notice the same pronoun. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. If you could exclude people from a banquet that honored you, who would it be? (laughs) You wouldn't want your enemies there, would you? You want your friends there. You want people who will honor you, not will roast you. The good shepherd motif changes. Before it was good shepherd, now what is it? It's the warrior chef. The warrior chef. 
and he prepares the table before you in the presence. And I'm, and I'm like, uh, uh, could, could we move this uh, banquet somewhere where these people aren't there that don't like me, who wish me ill, in the presence of my enemies? Do you feel like eating when someone's giving you a mean look or criticizing you? Well, if you are with the warrior chef, the good shepherd, you're looking at the table. It's a feast prepared for you. Your enemies can't do anything about it. It's like a force field. You're not afraid of them. You're not bitter at them because you are focused on the food and the presence of the warrior chef. You are completely at peace and able to eat those tacos and pizza and lasagna and fruit and brat and, um, and uh, other healthy things that you would choose for your banquet. But the point is, is that in the middle, and remember, David is sitting at a place now where his enemies surround him. And he says, you prepare a table before me. Now, there's something very subtle here. Biblical meditation is when we base our thinking and imagination on Scripture truth. And then we fabricate the storyline consistent with the truth. That's what our imaginations are. You can imagine things, right? You have imagination? Well, right now, let's try it out. I want you to tell me, I want you to imagine looking, you're in your car, imagine looking in the back seat. Can you see it? Can you see it, your imagination? Now, as you look at the back seat over there on that side behind the passenger seat, there's a bunny. Do you see it? It's pink. <laughs> you see, you can do it. You know how to meditate. You know how to imaginate. And, and so as we do this here, we, biblical meditation, we build those thoughts. Now, when you imagine you're the director, you choose the setting, you choose the characters, you move them around, you have them talk, right? And, and you do this all the time. And, and so in biblical meditation, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me, your rod and staff comforts me. And then I believe that God met him. As David built a bridge of meditation, God met him and changed. It's like God said, son, you know I'm the good shepherd, but you ain't seen nothing yet because I am the warrior chef. I prepare a table for you even though your enemies are around grinding their teeth. They can't get to you. I believe that as we construct biblical meditation, which is therapeutic, by the way. It builds the soul. It's a spiritual discipline, an ancient spiritual discipline endorsed by the Scriptures. As we build that, there are times when Jesus himself will meet us and take us beyond our own ability to imagine into realms of heaven. How would you like that? 
Oh, would that be refreshing to your soul? But you can't get there unless you do this part. And there he meets you. And there he meets you. And you see, Jesus in John 10, Daniel taught, is the good shepherd. He knows you by name. He calls you. Biblical meditation is a challenge for us. But we're going to see how God guides us into it. Now, he anoints my head with oil. In ancient times, if someone put oil on your head, it wasn't an insult. You weren't at a salon. When they put oil on your head, it was a sign of, of honoring an upgrade in your identity and a new destiny. When David was anointed king of Israel, he was a teenager. He was a shepherd in father's field. They called him in. Prophet Samuel anointed him and made him king of Israel. Now, it took him a while to assume the throne, but his identity and his destiny changed. Do you understand that? Now, if God anoints your head with oil, he's anointing you into an identity as his beloved son or daughter. And you have a destiny and a mission. It's not just for missionaries. If you are a husband, where's Sarah and Paul? Are they here today? Paul can't be here, Sarah. If you saw their Facebook posting of their wedding a couple of weeks ago, they did a biblical wedding ceremony. And at that time, it didn't happen in, in physically, Sarah, but, but I want you to know the Holy Spirit anointed you to be a wife. He gave you resources beyond your own physical ability to be the wife that Paul needs. And he anointed Paul to be a husband beyond his abilities, to have patience beyond his own patience, to have love and tenderness and care. Wherever you are, whatever job you have, if you will just submit to the anointing, you will have a raised identity into a destiny of making a difference wherever you are by the presence of God. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. That's not the same oil cup. This is a different cup. But it means that this cup is never ending. The food is never ending. It's always there. Uh, no matter how much I eat, there's more there. I can return to the table time and again. Surely goodness and loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's kind of a funny picture, isn't it? To think that you're being chased. They're after you. It's like loving kindness and mercy. Yeah. But the idea I get is that I want them to catch me. A couple of weeks ago, we were with our grandchildren, seven of them. And so we would play, and I would chase them around. They would squeal and laugh and run, and then I would catch them, and we would tumble into tickles and cuddles. And they seemed to, I believe that's what it's like to be chased and caught by goodness and loving kindness. Slow down. Slow down. Let them catch you. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's security, a place that you will have even after this life. Now, remember this psalm was probably composed by David on his worst day. 
And we can see that with this psalm, he strengthened himself. Now, David, thanks. Two weeks ago, you described how David strengthened himself in the Lord and won the next battle. I believe this is the way David strengthened himself. What if on that battlefield he stood there, the Lord is my shepherd? This is the way David strengthened himself, and this is the way we can strengthen ourselves. We're going to take a deep dive into biblical meditation. I not only want you to experience this one, I want you to know how you can take biblical meditation using your imagination based on Scripture to restore your soul, to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Now, biblical meditation is different than what you've heard typically meditation is today. In meditation nowadays, you're told to empty your mind, right? Clear your mind? Now, that's easier for some of us than the others. But biblical meditation, you're to fill your mind, to fill your mind, not only with this particular passage, but with the teaching of Scripture, the theology. It should be theologically dense, though it may be whimsical in its application. Biblical meditation. Uh, David did this with the good shepherd, the meadow, the table. Now, not many Christians employ biblical meditation for our spiritual growth. We think linearly, don't we? We think like words on a page. I believe the Lord God is this and that and the other, and we walk away unmoved. Now, it's important to have the facts down. I don't want to make light of that. It's important to have good theology, but it needs to be integrated into our hearts, and biblical meditation is the way that God has given us, endorsed by Scripture. In fact, in Romans 12, too, we're told, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Did you, did you see that transformed? Have you ever wanted to change anything about you? Has anyone ever mentioned that perhaps you needed to stop doing something or start doing it or be changed somehow? To be transformed has to start with a renewing of the mind, with a replacing of wrong thoughts by truth. To be transformed means that we follow the Scripture teaching. We establish God's Word, and we integrate it into our hearts. I would suggest by biblical meditation. In fact, David endorsed it, Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. David was a man after God's own heart. How do you think he got there? By the example he set with biblical meditation. Now, we all meditate. You probably have meditated already today. If you've had a worried thought, what do you do? You project worst-case scenarios, and you see yourself in a situation that's absolutely terrifying, and you don't know what to do. That's meditation. Somebody hurt your feelings, said the wrong thing to you. And so what do you do? You construct a scenario where you replay that, and at the end of it, you switch it a little bit, and you let them have it. I mean, you set them straight. Or you see yourself all of a sudden coming into a lot of money, having a new this, a new that. Greed, lust, resentment, 
seeing yourself as someone you're not married to. We all use our, we don't think linearly. We don't think like type, 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 type words on a page. We think in video, color, sound, pictures, right? So you all know how to meditate. But the question is, if your meditations are torturing yourself about bad things that may happen to you, does that meditation please the Lord God? Do you think God is pleased when you forecast yourself in a bad situation and God's not there and you're all alone? No. You've left him out. You've left him behind. We use our imaginations, even camping. Have you ever been in a tent at night and you hear noise? It's amazing at that moment. I have a surveillance camera in a tree outside my tent. That surveillance camera picks up a bear moving toward my tent. I'm seeing it vividly. My heart rate goes up. My blood pressure rises. It's a bear. No. No. It's not. But we we spin these imaginary things easily. Let's do it according to God's word. Because imagination brings about physical effects within us the same as if we were in the situation. And so there is an epidemic, not COVID, an epidemic of stress in our lives today where we have imagined ourselves in uh, terrible situations. We've imagined ourselves having a lot of money, but we don't actually. And we have induced ourselves into stress. And the hormones in our body keep us in a state that is medically damaging. Let's, let's do biblical meditation. Now, it's not just the Bible that endorses it. Psychologists in the last 50 years especially have studied the effects of meditation in our lives. Visualization. Have you heard about... Uh, well, like the, the uh, athletes at the Olympics now, they visualize themselves at whatever they're going to compete in, whether it's a race, gymnastics, or whatever. They visualize it. They visualize themselves doing it perfectly, and it tends them toward excellence. In fact, Alan Richardson, years ago, he got a group of basketball players, and he separated them. The first group, he said, I want you to practice 20 minutes a day making free throws. Second group, he said, you're not to go on the court. I want you to mentally practice making free throws. The third group, no instructions. And sure enough, after a period of time, the group that had practiced free throws had improved. The amazing thing was is that the group that had mentally practiced improved almost as much as those that have physically practiced. The other group regressed. So the question is, are you mentally practicing faith or fear? It's your choice. Actively engaging your imagination along biblical lines can save your life. There was a man years ago, his name was Nathan, uh, Sharansky. 
He was arrested in the Soviet Union, charged with spying, and sentenced to isolation in the gulags. He spent nine years there. The purpose of that is that a person will wither away, physically, mentally, and emotionally, deprived of senses, isolated. But he knew that if he allowed his mind to wander, he could go crazy. So many, so many in his uh, encounter there did. But what he did is that he practiced chess in his mind. He'd been a chess player. He, he literally played thousands of games of chess in his mind during that nine-year period. He got where he could see the chess board from every angle, from his side, the opponent's side. He wanted to be a champion. He never knew if he'd get out. After nine years, he was released. And one day, soon after his release, he was able to play a chess game against the world champion, Gary Kasparov. And he won. You see, what you do with your mind, how you control your thoughts, how you engage in biblical meditation or meditation in the right things can literally enhance your performance as a Christian, that you will be more loving, more kind, more strong, more tender, more brave. So right now, we're going to meditate on the first three verses of 23rd Psalm. I want to ask you to just to relax. You've seen how this is endorsed by Scripture. God wants to draw you into it. How it's been proven psychologically to make a difference. You can sit there, you can close your eyes, open them, whatever you want to do. I'm going to read the words, and then I will describe a little bit of the scene to you as you fabricate it in your imagination. I'll ask you a few questions just to make sure we're all on the right track. Now, remember, the purpose is that we uh, firmly establish our imagination on the truth of Scripture. Now, for example... In your imagination, you might see yourself worried about an issue over here, and you're over here by yourself, and God's not with you. Is that true? No. So you bring your mind back over to line up with Scripture. It's your mind. You can do whatever you want with it. Let's line it up. All right. Take a deep breath. You're the director. You're the choreographer. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I want you to see the green pasture of your choice. It may be somewhere you've been. Or maybe somewhere you haven't been. But it is a green pasture of peace. I want you to feel the grass under your feet, to see the grass gently waving in the breeze. You feel the breeze upon you. You feel the sunshine. In your meditation, is the sun right above? Or is it 
sunup? Is it near dusk? Do you feel the warmth of the sun? Feel the green of the grass? You're satisfied. You're content. You're tired, but you're full. And so you sit down in the green grass for rest. The Lord is my shepherd. I want you to look around your meadow and find the shepherd. May take a moment. Find the shepherd. He's there. If your imagination is having a hard time seeing him there, bring it under the control of Scripture, biblical truth. He's there. Find the shepherd in the green meadow. Just raise your hand a second if you found the shepherd. Okay, good, good. Now, we're told further that the shepherd knows us by name cares for us. Wherever you first saw the shepherd, close or far, I want you to begin to bring the shepherd within arm's length of you. This will mean that you will have the shepherd walking toward you to come within arm's length. You may find that your mind is reluctant because you don't feel worthy of the shepherd. You tell it no. The good shepherd said he loves me. See him walking toward you to be with you within arm's length. Now I want you to look and see the face of the shepherd as he's facing you. If his face has not been toward you until now, have his face turn. How many of you can see the shepherd's face now? Okay, what's the expression on the shepherd's face? Your mind may tell you there's a frown there because he's displeased with your behavior. But the truth of the matter is here that Jesus said he's our good shepherd. I want you to look at the face of the good shepherd, and I want you to see his delight, his smile. He's happy to see you. He cares for you. Can you see his face pleasant? Can you see it radiant with his love for you? Now I want you to feel the touch as his hand extends and he places it upon your head. Feel the warmth of his hand upon your head. You're looking up into his face. His face is etched with delight. He loves you. His hand is on your head. And as you look at his face and see his smile, I want you to listen. I want you to hear what the good shepherd wants to say to you. Oh, yeah, he's been wanting to say this to you for a long time, but you've not been listening. Listen. Look at his lips. They begin to move. Hear his voice. What does he say to you?
How many of you heard his voice? Heard him speak to you? Yeah, yeah. If you weren't able to today, you can do this anytime today until you can hear his voice because we know on Scripture that he wants to at least call you by name, to say your name, and then probably to say something to you. You're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Oh, no, Lord, no, no, good shepherd, I, I'm not pleased. I love you unconditionally. I'm pleased with you. I care for you. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us. Now, how many of you were able to get into that, at least to some extent? Okay. It's your imagination. You can conform it to Scripture and begin to weed out the negative thoughts Images of worry, fear, and anger, resentment, greed, and lust. Replace it with his love. Now, Jesus is our good shepherd. In John 10, he says he laid his life down for us. He died on the cross for us. Nothing could assure your value or his love for you more than that. In a moment when you take communion, remember Jesus said to his disciples, this cup, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. So during this time of communion in the quietness, perhaps you'll take this communion in the green pasture with your shepherd.